This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host, Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. You know, one of the more confusing issues for amateurs in the computer age is audio devices. Seriously. Now, an audio device, you can put quotes around that phrase, can be a circuit within your transceiver that streams audio information in digital format to and from your computer through a USB cable. It could also be a microphone or a headset that plugs into one of your USB ports. It could also be the speakers inside the video monitor that you have attached to your computer's video output. Or it could also be the input or output of the sound device on the motherboard in your computer. Most of my experience is with the Microsoft Windows operating system. And through sometimes painful lessons, I've learned how Windows splits up all of your audio devices and sometimes gives them labels that aren't necessarily intuitive. I'll give you my own example. In my station computer, Windows recognizes three separate audio devices. The first is the audio going to and from the USB line connected to my ICOM IC7300 transceiver. It refers to this channel as USB audio codec. The second is the audio output from my video card, and that feeds the speakers that are in my monitor. And finally, The third is the Realtek sound device within the computer itself. I only use that channel when I want to blast audio over a larger set of speakers in my station. I also, though, own a USB microphone headset, and when I plug it in, Windows recognizes it as a fourth audio device and calls it USB plug-and-play. Clear as mud, isn't it? The confusion often arises among hams who've decided to try digital operating with modes like FT8, or maybe they're using software to decode CW. I must confess to having done this when a DX or contest operator gets above 25 words per minute. Frankly, I'm lost. However, all of these software programs have to be told which input and output audio device to use, usually through some sort of menu selection. For example, while I want to operate FT8, I use the WSJTX software. When I installed the software, however, I had to make sure I selected USB audio codec as the audio input and output so the program would swap audio with my transceiver. Same for the CW decoding software. In its setup menu, I had to select USB audio codec. When I'm using software to record audio from my microphone headset, such as what you're hearing right now, I plug in my headset and make sure I select USB plug and play in the audio software menu. On the other hand, if I want to record audio from my transceiver, I have to go back to the menu and select, you guessed it, USB audio codec. Now you see where the confusion arises. Juggling these audio selections can sometimes be exasperating. I've been doing this for many years and I still get it wrong. Now here's a curveball I'll toss your way. Imagine you have software installed in your computer for a software-defined receiver. 
It will have an audio menu, and chances are you'll be directing the audio to external speakers so you can hear it. What if you have another piece of software on your station computer and you want to use it to decode digital signals from your software-defined receiver? Let's say you have slow scan TV software and you want to see what images hams are exchanging on 14 to 30 kilohertz. Well, how do you get the audio information from your SDR software to your slow scan decoding application? Well, as Shakespeare wrote, ah, there's the rub. But there is a solution, and it's called a virtual cable. A virtual cable is a software application that runs in the background after you install it. Windows treats the virtual cable as if it were any other sound device, so it will appear as a selection in my SDR software audio output menu, and it will appear as a selection in the audio input menu of my slow scan decoding software. Just make the selections in the respective menus and the programs, and the virtual cable will share the audio information between them. Frankly, I think that's ingenious. The virtual cable software I use, by the way, is called VB, that's Victor Bravo, VB Cable. But really, there are a number of others out there. Just do a Google search for virtual audio cable. I'm speaking with Clint Turner, KA7OEI. Good morning, Clint. Morning. I'm going to ask a question that I think a lot of hams may ask, and that is, what is QRSS? Well, it stems from QRS, which is the Q signal for send more slowly, and by adding the extra S, it's much more slowly. So it's just sending very slow Morse code. How slow are we talking about, would you say, like in words per minute? Um, well, think of it in seconds per dit. Uh, fast QRSS, or QRSS3, is three seconds per dit, and I've seen it used past two minutes per dit. So it can take an hour or so to send a call sign. Wow. This has been around for a while, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. It's uh, been around pretty much since the advent of waterfall displays, which you can date back to the uh, late 90s or so, when uh, Argo and Spectran and a few of those uh, programs appeared, where you could take the audio from your sound card, uh, fed from your rig, and see what was on the display, and slow it way down and narrow the bandwidth to receive signals that would otherwise be inaudible or undetectable. What is the advantage of doing QRSS, of sending CW at such a slow rate? Well, it takes a lot less power, just like FT8 uses fairly long bit periods and narrow bandwidths. QRSS, you only need to have a bandwidth that's roughly three times the frequency uh, period of the DIT itself. So if you're sending one DIT every three seconds, you can get away with just a few tenths of a hertz bandwidth, and that really improves your signal-to-noise capability and able to detect signals that are buried in the noise, like those found on some of our long wave bands. Now, when you mention long wave, that brings up a good point. Is QRSS being used at all on our new long wave bands? A little bit. To some degree, it's been supplanted by modern modes that uh, Joe Taylor has come out with, like uh, Whisper and some of the FST4 and FST4W modes. But it is still used occasionally because it's a visual mode since the code appears on a waterfall. Because it's a visual mode, like Hellshrubber, you can use your gray matter DSP to piece together letters from 
that might appear in the noise on the waterfall display. It reminds me a little bit, in that sense, of Hellschreiber, where exactly you know the software isn't really decoding it so much as just showing gray or black uh, pixels on a screen, and your eyes are doing the decoding, or your brain is. That's exactly right, and because the signals are often repeated, you can piece together bits from different uh, repeats of the same call being sent to put together something that even a fancy digital mode might even miss. And it, uh, to send it, it takes almost no hardware, because all you need to do is generate a key-down signal, which could be done from either a computer program, or you could even use something like an Arduino to tap away on your transmitter. So could any transmitter, in theory, be used for this? Sure. Um, it's often done by keying the serial port line or even producing audio into the microphone. And what about output power? Most of the guys who are doing QRSS, how much power are they normally running? It depends on what they're trying to do. Uh, for example, in the earlier days of the long wave bands when things were being tested, some people ran a lot of power uh, just to get the signal through because we didn't know what to expect. And on some of these tests, there was even some testing early on on using Part 5 licenses in the 30 kilohertz range by amateurs that were copied across the pond and across the United States. And they ran hundreds of watts at 30 kilohertz into very long antennas. How many people would you say, if you had to estimate, Clint, are active in QRSS today, globally? It is really difficult to say. Uh, the most uh, obvious example of QRSS being used is the so-called hypers that inhabit the frequency around 13.56 megahertz, the ISM band. That is an unlicensed band. You don't use your amateur call sign. You make up one, rather. And you're limited to just a few milliwatts ERP, uh, according to the rules. And a lot of people use QRSS there. And you can go with a uh, waterfall-type display and turn around and actually see call signs scroll past on the screen. And there are dozens of these. When you mention software, Clint, uh, are there various types of software that you would need to view the waterfall display and decode the signals? The best programs to do this are Argo and Spectran because they're very easy to use and will scroll the waterfall slow enough. And they will even save picture files so you can look at what is scrolled past and piece together a sort of a moving image or an animation of what, what has happened so you can scan over very long periods of time. Another program, of course, is Spectrum Lab by DL4YHF, which has a bit more of a learning curve, but it's sort of a Swiss army knife of DSP. Some people actually put these uh, images on their website so that they can be viewed, and they call those grabbers because they're grabbing spectrum off the air and displaying it for all to look at. So if you're transmitting such a signal, you can see if you're getting out by watching the line appear on the screen at someone else's station. They do something similar, Clint, on slow scan television. There are a couple of web pages that are functioning much like grabbers. They grab images typically at uh, 14 to 30 megahertz and then show people what the images look like. So if you're sending a slow scan signal, you can see how well you're being received in California and so on. It sounds similar to that. Right, right. Yeah, and unlike like web SDRs or what might be on the waterfall display in your rig, these are typically much, much narrower bandwidth and much slower. Because if you're, you can imagine if you're listening for to a QRSS3 or QRSS30 signal, 
to get a signal that's way in the noise, you need a very narrow bandwidth, and you need to be staring at it for a very long time. So it's great that you can either have it scroll very slowly or review images that have been saved. Other than the long-wave bands, Clint, looking at HF, what is the most popular HF band for QRSS? Um, I've seen it on 160. I don't know how much is being done now, but uh, I've personally done it even on LightWave, where myself and another station have pointed LightWave transmitters at a mountain that's common, that can we can both see, and something that would be inaudible will appear on our screen. So it can be used on any frequency where you can, with a frequency maybe made stable enough that the signals won't drift out of the very narrow bandwidths while dur- during the transmission. I've managed to monitor some QRSS activity on 30 meters, and yes. <laughs> I, I found it's a little hard sometimes to distinguish between what I'm thinking is somebody tuning up, and then it turns out that I, what I'm hearing is a is a long da being sent. Right, yeah. And, yeah, that's where the advantage of the slow waterfalls uh, come into play. And in addition to just plain on-off king, some people send QRSS by shifting the frequency because if the signal disappears, was it a key up or did it just fade out? And by shifting the frequency, you're transmitting continuously, and you can tell whether or not the signal is really there. And if there is a bit of a fade, you can try to make sense out of it. Now, I'll ask Clint what is probably the most ignorant question you'll encounter all day, but I I do need to ask it because I know a lot of listeners will want to know. Can you actually carry on conversations with this, albeit very long ones, or is this more of a beaconing type of activity? It's definitely more of a beaconing type activity, but I do remember in the older days where people would actually just send short messages back and forth. Uh, on some of these bands, just maybe just for kicks, like Merry Christmas or something like that. So uh, unless you're satisfied to just take hours to send even the shortest message, it's probably not the best uh, rag chew mode. No, I wouldn't think so. I, How long would it take to, at the normal QRSS speed, if there is such a thing, to send an entire call sign? Let's see. Uh, probably just a few minutes, depending on your call sign. I mean, if you have a call, you know, like W0QQQ, uh, it's going to take quite a while. Not to put you on the spot or play devil's advocate here, but if someone were to ask, well, geez, this sounds like a lot of trouble, why don't I use Whisper instead? What would be your response to that? Well, in many cases, you probably would want to use Whisper, but nothing beats QRSS for simplicity. I mean, uh, you can create the QRSS with just uh, by running, you know, a simple program like uh, QRS by LN7YD, or as I said, put something together with an Arduino just to pound it out. Or you can use even one of the QRP Labs uh, Ultimate 3 beacons. I mean, it's just, it's very simple to produce. You can edit a sound file to generate the dits and dots you need and just play it back into your radio. So if you want a visual medium on the receive side and very simple transmitting just by turning on and off even a low-power oscillator, there's nothing simpler to generate a low-power and quite durable signal that can be received in even the worst conditions. What sort of hardware are you using at your station? Let's see. I have used uh, several things. I, I have a Medford transmitter that I have been known to put on the air, which is in the AM broadcast band, you know, 3-meter antenna and 100 milliwatts maximum power, and it just uses a pick just to generate my initials because you really don't want to use call signs out of the ham bands. 
And all it does is really turn on and off an oscillator. And that has been copied all over the Western United States at times. I also have one of the QRP Labs Ultimate uh, 3 transmitters, and it can be used to pad out QRSS on any band for which you have an antenna. Well, speaking of antennas, that, that makes me wonder, what would you say, if this is a fair question, what, what's been your best QRSS DX so far? Let's see. It, it depends. Um, on the loafer band, which is the 160 to 190 kilohertz unlicensed, in the past, I've been heard halfway across the country, you're limited to 15 meters and one watt input, and that represents it at very best a milliwatt ERP on these bands. And even in the old days before the weak signal modes, the Joe Taylor weak signal modes, uh, I could be heard across the uh, western United States and perhaps even further. A few years ago, before we had our handbands, people were running part five beacons on really low frequencies and being heard uh, even across the pond, uh, Atlantic crossing the Atlantic into Europe using QRSS. When I think of QRSS... For some reason, back in my memory, I tend to associate it with the type of communication systems that the Navy has used on extremely low frequencies to communicate with submarines. Am I crisscrossing my memories here? Well, that's that's understandable because it has been used for experimenters and amateurs alike on the low frequencies. But you may be remembering the ELF transmissions from years ago where around 78 hertz the U.S. military was sending just three-letter codes that took 20 minutes. Uh, very slow code. It wasn't QRSS, but it was very narrow bandwidth uh, just so that it could communicate at very low signal-to-noise ratios with submarines. That's what I'm thinking of. And the submarines would be submerged and would tow a long antenna, if I remember correctly? That sounds about right. What do you see the future of QRSS being at this point? Well, it's, as I mentioned, it's being supplanted by some of the Joe Taylor modes, and for good reason. They're automated and are, frankly, a bit more durable. But uh, as I said, nothing beats the simplicity of both reception and transmission. So I think it will continue to fill a small niche and continue to be used on both the lower frequencies and across the HF spectrum. And it's fun, too. I, I enjoyed decoding the signals I was getting on 30 meters. Oh, yeah, and on the uh, 13.56 ISM band, you can just tune around there on practically any web SDR, and if you're vigilant, you can watch uh, call signs scroll past. And if you're curious about who they are, go to the Long Wave Club of America webpage, which has a fairly up-to-date list of the known Part 15 beacon operators on those frequencies. So do a Google search for Long Wave Club of America. Yes, the LWCA. It's, it is probably the best clearinghouse for what's been going on on these lower bands and also on some of these other esoteric experimenter modes. Okay, excellent. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it, Clint. Well, thank you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at ARRL.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.